Yeah, it's good, it's good being here. Even when I walk in the door, that girl who's on the wall was like my friend Val. So it's cool coming back here because most of you I don't know, but I feel like I know this place and I love this place. I actually went to high school here too for two years. So I did six years, well, five years in the dorm and then one year in Davidson. So I spent a lot of time here at Prairie and it's good, it's good coming back. We, we checked out the new floor in our deck and it is beautiful. I am so, like we, my husband and I both play basketball and we spent most of our dates actually were playing basketball in the gym, which is kind of lame maybe, but uh, that's the type of people that we were. So it's, yeah, I don't know, it's great to see some of the stuff that's going on here. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be here with you today. The story that we're going to look at this morning is from Genesis. So if any of you brought your Bibles, um, take a to peek there to Genesis chapter 16. And while you flip there, I'm gonna, it's a bit of a lengthy passage, so I'm just going to read it out here for you. It says this, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne him. Well, poor Hagar, a little bit. Um, she sort of gets a bad reputation in the Bible all around. In this story, she's, you know, part of this unfortunate situation with, you know, Abram and Sarai's mistake. And then in the New Testament, Paul uses her, her situation as an example about legalism and slavery. But in reality, this, this story is just the story of a person who's, who's trying to run away from her problems. That's it. And, and I think I love this story because that's something that each one of us can relate to. We all have a situation, some, something going on in our life where we maybe just don't want to face it. I bet some of you actually could think of, you know, a certain syllabus you have, maybe where you've got an assignment that you just don't want to have to face, and you, it can mull around in your head. But, but even school assignments aside, all of us have something. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's something back home from our past. Maybe there's a memory. Something deep inside of us that we just, every time we think about it, we just, just wish that it could just go away. We could run away. 
I know I have something like that in my life. I actually, I actually did run away when I was 15. I, I had really struggled with some things with my parents for a long time, and it, it didn't get better. It got worse and worse and worse, and, and I just started to get bitter and hard. And, and finally one day I said, that's it. I, I, I am not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I just made a plan, and I left. And I went and lived on my own. And um, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Big or small, all of us have stuff where we just don't want to face it. We do. And if you look at Hagar's life, what we just read, it's not too hard to realize why she didn't want to face her life. I mean, from the ancient culture, she had three strikes against her. She was foreign, she was female, and she was a slave. Okay, you couldn't get much lower than that. You know, she'd, she'd been taken away from her family, her culture, she had nothing. And then you add on top of that this situation where she's being told she's going to be like a human baby incubator. I, I don't know how many of us would want to, you know, sign up for that task, but she's, she is lowest of the low here. And to me, this situation, the whole idea is, is kind of crazy about what this custom is. And I don't know if you guys ever sang the song, Father Abraham, you know the song, Father Abraham, when you're kids? Anyone? Okay, some of you know it, okay. Okay, so, okay, all right, all right, all right. Okay, so Abraham, I'm just going to call him Abraham half the time because, you know, Abram and Sarai, whatever, so just bear with me on that, but... We talk about Father Abraham, and you know, people sometimes used to talk about like Sarai's our mother. And I remember reading the story and being like, what a horrible woman. Like, how power hungry do you have to be to make your slave have your own kid? And I remember reading the story and just thinking, she was awful. And then I got married. And I, I realized that offering another woman to your husband is like so far away from a powerful position. This is actually just, like, devastating for her. And the, the, the situation of the day was wives were for producing children. That's, that was their role. And if you couldn't, many marriage contracts of the day tell us that the wife was then expected to either buy or somehow provide another woman for her husband to have kids with. For Sarah, this is, like, extreme vulnerability, extreme weakness and shame. She was childless. And so for Hagar, as bizarre as it is to us in this situation, she actually saw this as, a, as an opportunity where she could maybe change her status, where she could maybe actually switch places with Sarai. Because legally, if she had a kid for Abram, he could choose her as his chief wife. That's what's going on in this story. And, and you can tell from the way that she starts treating Sarai that she's already trying to shake off her slavery, you know? Abram's going to choose me. But it doesn't happen doesn't happen. Sarah is not ready to give up her place, and Abram agrees with her, and when he doesn't choose her, you could just feel this woman who, who already had nothing, and now it's getting even worse, because Sarah is mad, <laughs> and I get it. I'm, I'm married. I'd be pretty mad if someone tried to steal my husband, and the language used here is she mistreats Hagar, that word mistreat is the same word that's used later of the Egyptians mistreating the Israelites. It's cruel. It's harsh. It's abuse. So you've got this woman who, who's already like bottom of the barrel low. Now she's pregnant. She's being abused. And add to that just the devastating realization that all she's ever going to be is a, a human incubator for this little baby. The oppression of her life is just more than she can deal with. 
She says, I can't do it. I'm running. I'm out of here. And I have no idea if she put a, a runaway plan together or not. I mean, I imagine that she, you know, at least charted a course and took some provisions with her into the desert. Um, I know I made a plan when I ran away. I rented a little basement, and I didn't tell anybody. Uh, I rented a little place, and I, I started, I got a job. I started saving my money. And slowly I started sneaking stuff out of my house and hid it in my new place. My parents wouldn't notice. All my drawers were empty. And then one day I just didn't come back. And I was so determined I was going to make it on my own. So I didn't have to go back and face it. And runaway plans are good until the end of the month comes. And, uh, you know, you're trying to decide, okay, today am I going to buy shampoo or am I going to buy food? And that was a real decision for me. And I remember looking at my hair in the mirror being like, yeah, I can make it another couple days or maybe another week. And meanwhile, the kids in my class are like, well, you probably shouldn't. You should probably shouldn't just go get the shampoo and be hungry for a day. But I remember that decision. And I was so low, and I, I had nothing. And that's the place where we meet Hagar. She's, she's probably seven days' journey, an inhospitable desert. She's pregnant. Most, a lot of you maybe have never been pregnant, but... Let me tell you, no pregnant woman ever wants to be, like, trekking through the desert. Ugh, like, I, I don't know how pregnant she was, but at any point in the stage, you don't want to be doing it. And she's alone. She's alone. And this woman who had experienced so much low in her life has probably just hit her all-time low. It's at this point that she has this incredibly powerful experience where God meets her. Right in the middle of the desert by the well. It says this, in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. That's not the idea of accidentally finding something. Okay, he is seeking her out. It is intentional. He is looking for her. He is coming to meet her. And that term, angel can be translated angel or messenger, and, and some scholars have different opinions on who this person actually is. Some say it's a human messenger. Some people say it's, it's an angel. Some people say it's maybe Jesus getting some airtime in the Old Testament. But the point that I want to make, I don't want to ent enter into the debate of who it actually is. The point is here that we, we have a different idea today of messenger than they had back then. You know, you think messenger like, is that like Facebook messenger or... No, it's messenger back then meant they actually took on the embodiment of the person whom they were delivering the message for. They were basically a vessel. So they were to be treated with the exact same authority, the exact same respect. It was, it was whoever this person was, it was actually a direct encounter, a direct message from the Lord to Hagar. And that's how she treats it. He says to her, Hagar. That's the first thing he says, her name, Hagar. And we miss this when we just read this passage sometimes, but this is actually so astounding. Because you can look through all of ancient Near Eastern literature, and there is not one instance where a deity calls a woman by name, let alone a slave woman. And if you actually read this passage again, this is the first time in the entire narrative that they have called her by name. Abram and Sarai call her slave every time. He calls her by her name. This is personal. It is intimate. He's there to meet her personally, not positionally, personally. 
He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, he already knows. He calls her slave of Sarai, right? So he's already, he already knows what's going on here. He gives her an opportunity to speak. And she says, she says I, I ran away, and, and, and then she just sort of trails off. Probably because she has no idea where she's going at this point. Her plans sort of crumbled and fallen apart. And he answers for her. He says, you have got to go back. The text doesn't say this, but sending Hagar back may well have actually saved her life. If you fast forward a couple chapters, we know that her son actually almost dies in the desert next time they take a trek out. And Hagar's told that if she goes back and faces what, what seems to her as to be impossible, that at least her son is going to have hope. And to us, maybe being called a wild donkey of a man doesn't seem like, you know, a huge compliment. I don't know, maybe some of you would like that, I don't know. But, but to this woman, it meant that no one was going to own her son. Her son was going to be free. And for any parent to know, have a promise that your kid is going to be sec- secure in their future, I mean, that's, that's what we want. But for her, meant going back to the abuse, the servitude, the cultural isolation. There is no promise in here that for her it's going to be easy going back. And it's not, if we read on. Yet even in the midst of this realization, Hagar's response is absolutely remarkable. She does here, this Egyptian slave girl does something that no one in the entire canon does. She gives God a name. She names him. She says, you are a God who sees me. She calls him that. And it's the idea of reciprocal seeing. I've seen the God who sees me. Hagar doesn't know that people aren't supposed to name God. She doesn't know that. And that's what's so great about this is because it's like, it's like if you've ever heard somebody pray for the first time. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity, and sometimes they, they're wor- like they just get it all wrong, and they say weird things, or they get, I know one person, that he, he got like this prayer voice on, because he, he didn't know what to do, and, and it, it's silly, and it's kind of awkward, and they do the wrong thing, and yet something is so rich about that experience, because it's so genuine, and, and as this is the only place in the Bible, it's kind of an alert to us, hey, pay attention here. Pay attention to this instance, this woman, what she does and what she says. And I just want to look at at two things. I want to look at why she names God and the significance behind the name. So why does she name God? Why do you think? Two things that I want to highlight. Partly, she just had a personal, very personal encounter with God. This is no longer the God of Abram to her. It is her God. This is no longer, this isn't the God of the Nile or any of the Egyptian gods she worshipped. This is the God who in her pain, in her destitution, sought her out and met her, saw her, right in the midst of of her world falling apart. He came to her aid. It's her name for him. No one else uses it in scripture. And it doesn't actually seem like she's necessarily intending other people to use it. She doesn't know she's going to be in scripture. It's her personal name for him. And I wonder if, if you were asked to give God a personal name based on his experience with you, what would you call him? Would you have a name? Have you ever thought about that? I I don't know if I'd ever thought about this until about six months ago. We have a little seven-month-old back there. 
that Mike Bookless is holding. Her name's Jovi. And um, the last seven months have been the hardest season of my life, for sure, for sure. Um, she had a, a severe heart defect that was undiagnosed. And um, we knew something was wrong. Uh, she, couldn't, she couldn't breathe properly. She couldn't eat. She would throw up nonstop. Her, her skin, she was like skin and bones. And um, she couldn't, because she couldn't eat, of course, you imagine a little baby who's like starving. They just cry and 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 then throw up and throw up and throw up and cry and cry and cry. And, and, and it was like, you know, people would say things like, all babies throw up, all babies cry. And I was like, something is wrong. And I, I literally hardly left the house for almost four months, um, except to go to the hospital or the doctor, and they didn't know what it was. And, and I remember walking in my room with her in the middle of the night, just crying, crying. I, I was like two hours of sleep for day after day after day after day after day, and just crying, holding this little baby that I couldn't feed. And feeling so alone and being afraid for my kid. And all of a sudden, a piece of scripture came into my mind, and it said, just, the, just this phrase from the Psalms, it said, our God is a God who does not slumber or sleep. And I, I just said that to myself over and over, and I said, my God does not slumber or sleep. God does not slumber or sleep. He's, he's awake with me here. And that became like a name for me with God. And it was, it was that personal moment where, where God came close in the midst of what for me was like, I mean, it was only like, five months or so, but it was like never-ending to me. And that, that personalness, I'm never going to forget that. I will never forget that where, where God met me with a personal name for him. And I think that's the second part of why she names him. She names her personal encounter because she's marking it. It's a reminder to her. She does not want to forget this. And you say, well, how could she forget something like this, Right? This is a pretty big, significant thing in her life. And, and, you know, sometimes in a place like this, where we've got things like chapel and, you know, Christian friends and Christian teaching, and you're surrounded by this environment all the time, it's hard to imagine these God encounters fading. But I could tell you stories about how many kids and friends of mine who sat where you're sitting, the girl who I know who painted that picture today would say she doesn't believe in God, She's one of my best friends. And yet, she didn't make markers of the personal things God had done in her life. And now she says, I don't believe. I don't believe. Hagar does not want to forget this. She wants to make it personal. And even for some of you here, actually, some of you maybe being at school isn't this emotional high. Maybe for some of you, it's a bit of a wilderness. But I need you to know that whenever God has come close to you, it doesn't matter if it's a big, flashy way it doesn't have to be something huge, but whenever God has come close, make a marker. Do not forget it, or it will fade. It will fade. What's the significance of the name she gives? Of all the things she could choose to call him, the piece of his character that she holds on to is that he sees her. And why is that? I mean, when I think about this, I, I might want to hold, I, I like justice. I might want to hold on to, like, God is justice or, or the fact that God has power. You know, if you're a vulnerable woman, you might want to hold on to a God who has power or a God who, who can change your circumstances if he wants to. But, but for her, she says, you're a God who sees me. Why is that? I think it's because she knows what it is to be unseen. 
That's been her life. Unnoticed, insignificant. She hardly has a name. She's been forgotten by life, by the world. Unimportant. Have you ever experienced that? Feeling forgotten or unimportant? Or like you just blend into the crowd and no one notices you? Maybe you know somebody who, who feels that way all the time. Sometimes you can see it on people's faces. About eight months ago, nine months ago, I had the opportunity to go uh, with a team to Lesvos, Greece. And Lesvos is an island where many of the migrants who have been fleeing Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and all these places have been coming across on rafts. Some of you have maybe seen this in the news. And I had the opportunity to go there and, and help with this situation. And I've been on trips before, and, and I've never experienced human devastation like this. We were in a camp. It's called Moria. Um, there was about 2,000-plus people in this camp, which formerly was a prison, so you can imagine what it was like, uh, outdoor prison. And there was mud everywhere. There was human excrement everywhere. It was, it was the filthiest place. Like, you couldn't go to the, like, it was, just, it was absolutely disgusting. You couldn't sit down. There's kids. There's people bleeding because they've come off the water, and they, they had huge injuries. There was people who, a dad came up to me and he had lost his little girl. He had no idea where she was. There's thousands of people, le multiple languages, no, not proper translation. It was an absolute disaster. And there's people clutching little grocery bags with all of their belongings in the entire world. And these are people who, some of them were doctors. I met doctors, I met lawyers, I met engineers, I met teachers. These aren't just like, you know, your everyday people. These are people who, who have been someone significant in their culture and their entire life's been ripped out of their hands. And my job was, that day, was handing out water bottles to these people. And I felt so stupid. I mean, how do you give somebody a water bottle who's just had their whole life ripped out of their hand? Be like, here, here's some water. And I, as I'm handing out water bottles, this one man, this one man, um, I passed him a bottle, and he, he, he says, who paid you to be here right away? That's what he said to me. And I was like, excuse me? Because <laughs> lots of them don't speak English. This guy did, and he says, who paid you to be here? You're a Christian. Who paid you to be here? And I said, well, actually, I, I, paid to be, <laughs> I paid a lot of money to be here, actually. And we weren't allowed to talk about God or anything, but I said, I paid to be here because we wanted someone to be here to welcome you and bless you. Give you a water bottle, <laughs> like I, and I, and I'm fumbling with my words to know what to say to him. He says this to me. He said, "Our country's destroying itself. People in my own faith are killing us. The whole world has turned its back on us and forgotten us." And he looked at me. He said, "You have come here. You see us." And he just broke down and wept. And he cried and he cried, and I, I felt so helpless. I had nothing to give him. I did not change his circumstance. I mean, the situation there has gotten worse and worse and worse right there in Greece. He very well may still be there. And yet, in the midst of his despair, my intentional presence meant everything to him. Meant everything. And sometimes, even when circumstances don't change, intentional presence of someone who cares and is with you is what you need to get you through it. That's what it was for Hagar. Nothing changed for her life. Her life was still, in our 
standards, horrible actually, but a God who saw her in the midst of it gave her the courage and the confidence to go back and face it. I remember being 16, and months had gone by. I'd lived on my own, and um, I remember sitting on my bed, and at this point, I had got my life together, so I had showered and stuff and didn't stink anymore. And, and things were going fine for me, actually, and, and all of a sudden, one day, I was sitting on my bed, and God just spoke into my heart and said, you have to go back. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't, like, no, I don't want to. And it was so clear, you have to go back and face this. And, and I remember fear, just, I, now I had to go back and apologize. How do you apologize to, now I'm a parent, how do you go back and apologize to parents that you just, like, ripped their heart out and, and not said a word? I had to deal with the consequences, not, and, and there was still the situation why I left in the first place that I had to face. But I did it. And, and in that season, God became so much more real to me than, than you know, I, I read about God in the Bible, and I knew God from my parents, and people talked about God, and I knew about God, but all of a sudden, when he was there with me, when it was hard, really hard, he was my God. And I could deal with it, and I, and I don't want to go back to that season in my life, but God walked me through it. And he became personal to me. And some of you have stuff that's hard in your life. Some of you have situations that are hard, things that you don't want to deal with, things you don't want to face. Memories that you don't want to ever think about again. And aren't you glad that our God isn't just a God who is there with us when it's good, but he's there with us when it's really, really hard. And he doesn't abandon us, he sees us. He is so personal. And for some of you, you've got situations that maybe they're not going to get better. And whatever it is that you don't want to face, maybe today, even though you know it in your head, maybe you need to receive in your heart that actually God is a God who sees me in this. He's with me. He seeks out people who are in wildernesses. And he sees them. Maybe today you need to pray and say, God, would you give me a name for you, a personal name? A name that I can hold on to, to say, God met me when it was hard and he walked me through it. A name to last you the rest of your life. If God is willing to meet Hagar in the middle of the desert, he will meet you if you ask him. Lastly, I want to close with this. If, if this is our God, a God who seeks out those who are broken, are we the type of people who seek out and take notice of the unseen? Are we those type of people? I mean, if you look around the world today, there are more Christians dying today because of their faith than there ever have been before. All you had to do is flick through the news, and there is human devastation everywhere. You look at Haiti, you look at Syria, you look at all these places, and, and sometimes their, their face flashes across, we see it in a picture or a news clip or something, and, and we see them for a second, and then they're gone and forgotten again. And sometimes being in a Christian place like this, where we've got our heads, you know, in our books and hanging out with friends, and that's all great, and, and do those things. But don't forget, there's a whole world of unseen people out there that when you see their face, even for a second, pray. Pray to a God who sees and remembers those people and say, God, I need to know that you see that person that I just saw in that clip. Be with them. Be present with them see them. We can't forget this. If we want to follow a God who sees this, we got to be those people.
And, and unseen people aren't just out there. There's unseen people here. There are people here in this room who feel invisible when they're in the dining hall. There's people in this room who feel alone when they're in the dorms. There's people in this room who feel that they don't want to ever look at themselves in the mirror because they just don't like themselves. We gotta take notice. See with God's eyes. We gotta be those sort of people. All of us have come here for different reasons, right? I mean, some of you are maybe gonna be nurses or work with youth, or maybe some of you are just taking a year off and don't know what you're gonna do yet, but all of us are here hopefully because we wanna be a little bit more like our God. And this is a God who seeks out people who are broken. And my prayer today is that we would be people who seek out those around us and are willing to be an intentional, personal presence in their life in the midst of their pain, to walk with them like our God does with us. So with that, I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this story. And even though Hagar's life and culture and situation is so far removed from ours, there is something about this that that can speak to all of us because we all know what it is to have hardship, hard things, stuff that we just want to run away from. And Lord, I, I pray that that whoever is here today who is, is in this, this spot of feeling wildernessy, God, would you allow them to sense your very personal presence in the midst of it? Thank you for what you've done in my life and how you've been real to me and help me to see a God who sees me. And Lord, will we be people who see those around us, those that you put in our path even just for a few moments, will we be willing to seek them out and care for them with the love of Jesus, our Savior? We pray this in your name. Amen.